This message was recorded at Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our goal is to faithfully preach the Word of God for the salvation of sinners, the strengthening of believers, and the glory of God. Please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org and listen for more information at the conclusion of this message. Okay, if you would um, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and I want to look at the last uh, few verses. Um, and I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll, I'm going I'm to read uh, 12 through, I'm going to read about half the chapter here, 12 through 31. We've discussed some of this um, last week and discussed um, 12 and 13 this morning, uh, but it'll help us get it in context and finish out this section, this, this chapter. <clears throat> so, 1 Corinthians 12, 12. And let's go to the Lord in prayer again. Father, we do look to You tonight again, praying, Lord, for understanding. Please uh, guide us in this time together, this time of study, and also in the observance of the Lord's Supper. Father, we want our hearts to be rightly engaged in all of these things so that we're attentive to Your Word and seeking to know You better and to know truth. And Lord, so that we come to Your table with a right heart attitude or desiring to worship You, to give You thanks for what You've done for us in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Um, I said this morning I'd give you opportunity for for some uh, questions if you have any because we... there's quite a bit in this chapter, so we'll give opportunity for that. But let me let me um, read uh, first and, and deal with um, the remainder of the chapter. And then we'll see where we go from there. Verse 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? Where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet. I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker 
are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with great modesty, which our, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. Okay. Um, a few verses here, I think, highlight um, what Paul is doing here. First, verse 12. The body is one and, ha- and has many members. And all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ, he says. In verse 14, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. In verse 18, As it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as He chose. Um, as it is, verse, verse 20, as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Now, we, we talked early on about um, problems going on in the, in the Corinthian church. You know, there were, there were various problems. We, we've looked at uh, all of those um, that we've encountered. One being just the, the resistance against Paul and his ministry and, and uh, the rejection of his apostleship. And then we also saw that there, there were schisms in the body. You know, some say I'm of Paul, some say I'm of Apollos, some say I'm of Cephas. So um, what uh, I, I called earlier personality-driven schisms. Um, and so Paul is, is coming back at, at those things and, and also their, um, their wrong emphasis on the gifts that we talked about this morning, the manifestations of the Spirit, uh, because even those are being used to exalt some people over and against others. And so Paul is saying, look, God has designed the body in such a way that it works as a unit and each part complementing the other parts. So he's done that so that there be no schisms in the church. So Paul's emphasis here is on the fact that we are, yes, many members. Like we talked about this morning, there's much diversity. There's diversity in gifts. There's diversity in ethnicity. There's diversity in social class, social standing. But we make up one body. Many members of one body. 
And again, that's that's Paul's main point here. He's trying to get all of the the members of the Corinthian church to to honor each other as they should, to love each other as they should, to think of each other as they should. And uh, so he uses the analogy of the human body. Now it's kind of interesting here. He he comes at it from a, a couple of aspects. Verse fourteen. Um, he says, "For the body does not consist of one member, but of many." Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. So, so first, he takes one of the members and, and basically says, you know, you, you can't separate yourself from the body because of your, because of your uniqueness. Uh, you know, one way or the other. And I, I think uh, a lot of times people kind of withdraw and they think, well, you know, I don't, I don't have any gift. I don't have any talent. I don't contribute anything. And Paul is saying you're all a part of the body individually. You're all significant. Because God distributes the manifestations of the Spirit as He wills. So He didn't, he didn't make a mistake. He's got, he's got the body designed just the way that, that he wants it. So, just because the, the foot um, is, is uh, he says, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, just because the foot is not a hand, he, does, he can't withdraw himself and say, well, I'm not, I'm not like the hand, so I'm not part of the body. And then he comes at it from another aspect. I mean, there, there is, is an example of somebody withdrawing themselves. Verse 21, he comes at it from another aspect. Um, somebody being... Isolated. In other words, somebody thinking of themselves as being superior, and so they want to reject other members. He says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet. So, you know, I mean, the feet definitely seem inferior to the head, right? <laughs> but, but the head can't just say to the feet, I have no need of you. I can testify to that. You know, a few years ago I broke my foot and uh, I found out how, <laughs> how, how badly I need my foot. And it was just one foot. I still had another one, another good one. Um, and uh, it, it was kind of tough getting around on a hurt foot. So the head can't just say to the foot, I have no need of you. On the contrary, verse 22 says, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Parts of the body that seem to be weaker. So sometimes in, a, in appearance, um, one part is not as strong as another part. Or maybe, again, if you, you relate this to the church, one, one part is not as important, as significant. And yet, uh, it may be that the part that seems to be weaker is really indispensable. You can... Uh, you can, you can, um, some, some parts are seen, you know, and they, and they, again, thinking of the human body, some parts are seen and they may be impressive. I mean, you may have, you may have, uh, if you're a man, I mean, you know, you may have arms, you know, a lot of muscle and all that kind of thing. It's seen and it's impressive. Then you've got other parts like maybe your heart or your lungs. They're kind of behind the scenes, right? I mean, they're not so, they're not, so, so obvious. The importance of them is not so obvious. They're not seen, but they're they're more indispensable than the arms or the legs. I mean, you can live without arms or legs. You can't live without a heart or lungs. 
So sometimes appearance can, can be misleading. But Paul says, on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we, we bestow the greater honor, and our unre- unrepresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. So um, some parts are of the body are out in the open. Some parts are covered. They're treated with greater modesty. So, so all of these things God has done to create a certain, a certain balance. And Paul uses this analogy and, and, and applies it to the church. Not everybody has the same gifting. Not everybody has the same abilities. Not everybody has the same manifestation of the Holy Spirit at work in their life. Not everybody is, is from the same ethnic group. Not everybody is from the same social class. But God has arranged the body in such a way that it operates, when it does what it's supposed to do, when people are loving each other like they should, it, it operates in a manner that is, that is most needful for the body. So, he says, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be, verse 25, that there may be no division, and that word is schism, that there may be no schism in the body. It's designed to work as a whole, as one unit. And again, like I said this morning, think about this. And this, this applies to us. And it's not just talking about the church universal, although that's certainly true. You could, you could use it in, 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 in that way. But he's talking to a local body. God has designed you. He has set things up. He has gifted you. He has brought you together out of the different classes and groups in such a way that you are you're designed to work in unity so that there are no schisms, no tears, no rents in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, now he's getting down to some to some practical application. And remember when we were in chapter 11 talking about the Lord's Supper, what, what they were doing there, um, in that they were partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, what they were doing, just in a nutshell, was not loving one another, right? They're coming together to partake of the Lord's Supper, all in selfishness. And so Paul is saying here that we should care for one another. That's how it's supposed to look, that the, body, the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now again, if you think about the, the, the body as an analogy, that's, that's pretty much true, isn't it? You, yeah, you slam the door on your toe, your whole body suffers. At least for a few minutes. <laughs> Probably for a few days. You suffer. The whole body suffers. The whole body feels the pain. And, uh, you know, you may have a limp for a while. So, should have the same care for one another. One member suffers. All suffer together. One member is honored. All rejoice. In other words, again, what he's saying is this, this, is, how, this is how we're to relate to one another. This is how we're to view one another. Somebody's suffering. We suffer with you. Because we have that kind of care. You rejoice, we rejoice. Why? Because we're members of the same body. Because we're, we're one unit. We all make up one, one whole. You don't... I mean, there's a real sense in which you don't go through anything 
everybody in this room goes through. You don't, you don't go through it alone. Uh, they weren't doing that in the Corinthian church. They weren't caring for each other in that way. They were, it was all self-seeking, self-exaltation. And, and again, amazingly enough, even when it comes to the operation of spiritual gifts, it was, um, seems to be motivated by uh, an interest in self-exaltation. Verse 27, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. All of us, again, the local church, the church at Corinth, the church at Fillmore, you're the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helping, administrating, various kinds of tongues. So he goes back to uh, mentioning uh, manifestations of the Spirit as examples of how, how God works in the body. And then he throws out some rhetorical questions here. Are all, verse 29, are all apostles? Well, no. And again, if you think of his analogy of the body, is, is every part of the body a foot? Is every part of the body a head? Of course not. You've got diversity, many members, one body, but diversity in, in the individual members. So, are all apostles? No. Now, again, these are rhetorical questions. So, you, you notice that the, the implied answer for every one of these is no. So, you, you could say, you could translate it this way. All are not apostles, are they? I mean, he's expecting no as an answer. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. The idea again is that God's not manifesting Himself the same way through each individual. Are all teachers? Again, the answer is no. Do all work miracles? The answer is no. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. So every question there, Paul is throwing out um, examples of individual manifestations of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in the life of the congregation. And, and every, every one, he's making a point. Not, not everybody does each of these things. He manifests himself. He distributes the manifestations of the Spirit as he wills for the good of the whole body. He says in verse 31, But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And this, this is interesting to me because um, here... He's he. Th- this is a rebuke. I mean, he's rebuking them for a wrong attitude toward spirituality, for a wrong attitude toward um, the manifestations of the spirit, spiritual gifts, operating. Believe it or not, operating in these gifts with a wrong attitude, having a wrong view of themselves, wrong view of their brothers and sisters in Christ. You kind of expect him to just just come down at the end here and say, look. Forget about the gifts. And that's almost the way it gets preached a lot of times nowadays. But that's not the way Paul winds up this section. In fact, he says in verse 31, he gives an imperative. Earnestly desire the higher gifts or the best gifts. 
Um, now, let me just point out something here for um, sake of intellectual integrity here. That, that term, earnestly desire, desire the best gifts or desire the higher gifts, earnestly desire the higher gifts. The, the spelling in the Greek can be um, translated as an indicative or as an imperative. In other words, it could be, he, he's saying this is what you do. You desire the higher gifts. And that, and that would kind of fit along the lines of what I was talking about a moment ago if he was just winding up the rebuke by saying, look, your whole mindset in all of this is wrong. Forget about the spiritual gifts. Here's your problem. You desire the higher gifts. Well, that's, that's, that is kind of the way we, we would expect him to wind it up. It can be translated legitimately that way because that, that verb, the spelling is the same in the imperative and in, and, and in the indicative. That's also the case in chapter 14, verse 1. And I think if, if you look at the two passages and compare them, um, I, I, I don't think the indicative fits. I think, I think it's an imperative. And, and that's the way you have to decide by context. And, and uh, so that's why so many are, are translated in the imperative. But look at 14.1 quickly. Pursue love and earnestly desire Spiritual gifts or spiritual things. Same case there. It could be imperative or indicative. I think it's imperative, especially because it's coupled with uh, this command to pursue love. He's not, he's not telling them, in other words, it's not just indicating, here's, here's your problem, you pursue love. No, it's what he's telling them to do. Pursue love. He's coming right out of chapter 13 where he's described what real agape love is to them. And he says, this is what you need to do. This is the higher way, the better way, the more excellent way. Pursue love. So he gives them the description of love in chapter 13. And then another imperative, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. So I think both are imperatives. And that's the way it's translated um, in the ESV. But earnestly, verse 31, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. Why would that be? Especially after all Paul has said, and, you, and you've got the, you know, we've all got the mental picture that what they're doing is, is seeking self-exaltation. They're, they're, they're pitting one gift against another gift. You know, this one's better than another. And why would he now say, uh, after, after making the case that the Holy Spirit distributes the gifts as He wills and that it all works, should work for the common good. Why would He say desire the higher gifts? And I think one reason is because they've just got, the, they've just got them out of order. They've got priority wrong. So we're going to see as we continue to move um, through chapter 13 and through chapter 14 that they're putting a great deal of emphasis here on the gift of tongues. And we'll deal with that when we get there. But, but Paul is, is saying, look, um, that's a lesser gift over against something like prophecy because not everybody's edified. And that's what he's after. That's what he's after. The common good. Remember verse 7? 
To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So in verse 31, when he says higher gifts, I think that's what he has in mind. In other words, the gifts that edify the whole body are the higher gifts. And so he's saying that's, that's, the, ones, that's the ones you need to desire. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. Um, especially, verse 14 one says, that you may prophesy. Because it's for the good of the whole body. Everybody is, everybody understands. Everybody is edified. So again, verse 31 is an imperative. Earnestly desire the higher gifts and I will show you still a more excellent way. Well, now he's about, we're going to stop there, but he's about now to, to, to get into describing what, uh, what love is. Uh, they, they've been, Motivated um, wrongly, wrong, bad, badly motivated, and he's going to show them what the right motivation is. What we ought to be pursuing as a body is the edification of the whole, and what ought to drive us in that is genuine Christian love. Right? Pursue the higher gifts in love for the common good. All right. Any burning questions about what we've been talking about? All that's crystal clear, right? Yeah, go ahead. And that may be part of it. May be part of it. Very possible. Yeah. I mean, again, I think a lot of what's going on here is um, it seems seems to be the case that they're they're looking at at some um, as being superior to others within the body, and what Paul is saying is there there's an, there's an equality. You know, God, everybody, well, I'm saying this. I think that everybody's gifted in some some way, some fashion. Um, it does seem here that Paul, at least in the early part of chapter 12 there, is talking about supernatural manifestations of the Spirit. Probably not every single person in the church, um, you know, experienced those kinds of manifestations. Maybe they did. I mean, we don't know. Probably not. But, but those who did, he's saying, they're distributed by the will of God for the edification of the whole. So it's not, in other words, it's not something to, to get boastful over. It's not something to get prideful over and think, well, you know, because that person has that gift that I consider to be lesser, and I have this gift which I consider to be greater, then, then I'm more spiritual than they are. Or because brother so-and-so over there uh, has this particular gift. He's, a, he's an eloquent speaker or whatever it is. Um, you know, we're going to be followers of brother so-and-so. And I think that's the kind of thing Paul's coming against. It's, it's creating schisms in the body. Division. We still have that, don't we, today? 
That's a good thought. It may, may well be. Yeah, they're they're at least again, yeah, they're at least devaluing some while exalting others. And uh, yeah, I think that's part of the reason, which is a good point. You know, that's that's part of the reason, not all the reason, but that's part of the reason behind having so many um, denominations today. I think there's some legitimate reasons too, and I and I think that um, you know having having. Having the distinctives that we have sometimes is inescapable. Uh, you know, I, I mean, you know, we had, we had a guy come through here not too long ago. He was he and he was literally just passing through. But but uh, you know, he talked to me after the service, and that was that was his thing. Was you know, he, he said he was going around country talking to uh, visiting churches and talking and trying to get everybody to uh, you know lay aside the denominational stuff and and uh, you know let's just all come together and be the Church of Christ. Well. I understand, you know, the the the, the desire for that, um, but uh, when it comes down to it, you know, practically, some decisions have to be made. You know, I mean, you just take one of the distinctions. This is what I told him. You take one of the distinctions between um, Anglicans, Presbyterians versus, say, Baptists. Okay, is infant baptism. So we can do that. We can say, well, I'm, we're not going to be Baptists, you know, which is fine with me. I mean, I'm not, you know, married to that. But we, we can say, and that's what I told him, but we can say, we're not going to be Baptists, we're not going to have Baptists on the sign, we're not going to do any of that, and we're just going to be Christians. Well, eventually somebody is going to want an infant baptized, and when that happens, a decision has to be made. It's inescapable. You can't just say, well, we're not going to do anything, because even that's a, you know, you're, you're not baptizing it, so I mean... Uh, so, so you either do it or you don't. So practically, it's it's inescapable. So some some distinctives I would say are legitimate. Uh, on this side of glory, you know, when we get to the other side, we'll we'll all be straightened out on all of that. But but some of them, yeah, I think you're right. You know, just are just born out of a certain emphasis uh, on on certain things. And and I think yeah, that's exactly what uh, it could be a, a good example of what Paul's talking about here. You know, you're either following individuals or Chasing after some particular emphasis, gift, or whatever, and so you wind up valuing that, devaluing everything else, and so you kind of get a, get together a group that thinks like you do, and go from there. Pastor, yes, sir. And, you know, there's such a harmony in Paul's writings, obviously, uh, and in the Word 
Praise the Lord. Yeah, you know, thinking about that, he made some mention of, of uh, like, we don't, we, we don't have all the perspectives. So, so for example, if, if you have a guy that is, is an excellent speaker, uh, and, you know, a lot of names come to mind. When we got today with all the technology, we know, you know, a lot of good preachers out there, and they draw big crowds, and that's fine. But you, you take a guy like that, excellent speaker, eloquent and all that, he's a charismatic type personality. See, he gets, even sometimes they hate to get it, but, but they still get a certain amount of, of, uh, of people putting them on a pedestal. That, that people look at that as, you know, kind of, they get a lot of glory, if you know what I'm saying. That can be the real danger. When a lot of times, who knows how many multitudes of people are behind the scenes that nobody knows anything about that are just prayer warriors. And, and you know, I kind of wonder, you know, when I, when, like when Paul talks about some parts being more needful than others, if, if that might not be an example, right? I mean, there, there are people that you and I never heard of that have committed their lives to faithful service and prayer and is is being a great eloquent speaker or whatever really better than that you know than somebody that does those type of things I, I don't I don't think so but
ones out front seem to get the honor from from people I mean um, but that's right told you all this story before, but I was listening to an interview with Os Guinness, and he's a well-known Christian author, and, and uh, good, very good, um, but uh, he comes from a long line of, uh, you know, uh, ministers in, in uh, I, f- I forget how many, you know, generations ahead of him, his father, grandfather, and so on, but he told the story about his, I forget how many greats, but his great-great-great-grandmother, whoever it was. Uh, however far back it was, who every day she prayed for ten generations below her that they would come to know the Lord and and uh, be committed to the gospel. Now you think about that. She's praying for ten generations of of people that haven't even been born yet, and 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 made that her habit. And so and then you know all of these godly um, people. Or produced um, through that line. So, like I say, somebody like him, now he's known, Os Guinness, and so he gets some accolades. His grandmother doesn't get a whole lot, except, of course, from him, but <laughs> his great-great-great-grandmother, whoever she was. So, people out front tend to, to get honored, and I think that's kind of what Paul is talking about in his analogy here. But there are other people that fit in the body as God has designed, and uh, one is not more significant than the other in the eyes of God. Mm-hmm. Definitely provided a good service, didn't they? <laughs> Amen. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right. Any other questions on the, the text from this morning or tonight? All right. Um, you got a question, Dave? Yeah. What do you say? Oh. <laughs> Go ahead. Manifestations of the Spirit? Well, you know, and Lord willing, we'll, we'll talk more about that as we, especially as we go through chapter 14. Um, but, you know, obviously some of these things are debated as to whether or not they take place today. Let, let me just say this, because um, I, I, I did say this morning that, that I don't consider myself a cessationist, although I've been accused of that. Um, but, but I don't think I am. I mean, I think I'm, think I'm being honest when I say that. Um, but... Uh, a lot of times people assume, well, if, if these kinds of supernatural things aren't, aren't evident in your church, then obviously you don't believe in them. Uh, I had a, a brother say to me one day, and, and uh, um, something along the lines, I don't remember exactly how he put it, but he was just talking about going to, to churches where, you know, he, he's charismatic, and he was talking about going to churches where, uh, these things aren't practiced, and, and that's what he was insinuating, you know, that they're not believed. And, and I understand that sometimes that's, that's true, but, but, I, but I asked him this question. I said, well, brother, um, what if the Lord's just not manifesting Himself in that way at that particular time or at this particular time? What, what do we do? do? Do we just generate it on our own so that we can say we got it? And, and it, the question even kind of blew him away because, I mean, he, I don't think he had really thought about the, that. People see it in the Scripture and they think, okay, it, it must be happening at all times in all circumstances. And I, and I don't think he had thought about that maybe the Lord's not doing that right now. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm raising an honest question. I'm not saying the Lord's not doing it. But I am saying this, and this is what I told him. I'm not going to try to produce it. And so, so I don't think, you know, that we should be held to that. You know, like, well, uh, you ought to see this, and you ought to see this, and you ought to see that. Whatever it is, tongues, prophecy. Um, well, we ought to see it when God is doing it. And Paul says in this passage that the Holy Spirit distributes the gifts as He wills. So I think, and, and, I, and I, I think we ought to be open to do whatever the Lord does. And uh, I told him, I said, you know, when I was, we started out pretty much, uh, at least it was not long after we were saved, that we were, we were involved with a charismatic organization. Um, and, of course, Dan and Sheila were there, so they know well. But I was, I was ordained, I was licensed and ordained by a uh, uh, Interdenominational Charismatic Organization called World Ministry Fellowship, WML. Still exists today, as far as I know. It's uh, headquartered in Dallas. World Ministry Fellowship. And we served um, in those circles for about six or seven years. 
Um, I was I was licensed in 19 licensed to preach um, in 1988, and then I was ordained in 1992, um, and and you know be, began to serve in, in the church that we were in as basically an associate pastor. We we didn't necessarily have that title, but that was basically what I did: youth pastor and associate pastor. Um, and so we, we, you know, we, we practiced all of these things. Um, and I, I told this brother, you know, that what, and I've told a lot of people, what led me out of that movement was studying the Scripture. And the more that I've studied, the less that I saw justification for uh, much of what we were doing, our practices. But what, what happens is a lot of people go to these passages and they assume that this should be the norm for the church, any church, anywhere, in any age. Uh, and and uh, uh, I don't think that's necessarily so. Uh, but I, I did also mention this, and I think this is true. I told him when, when we were in those circles, we kind of looked at everybody else, like the Baptists, you know, as uh, just being unbelievers in that respect. You know, you just don't believe that those things... And, and that's, that's true sometimes. People say that those things have been done away. But... After beginning to fellowship with a lot of Baptist brethren and so forth, I found out that that wasn't the issue. It wasn't necessarily that they didn't believe that God could or even would do those things. Again, it just came back to the thing. They, it, it, they just weren't going to try to produce it on their own. And, and that's the position I've taken as well. So, um, it does do these things go on? I my assumption is that, honestly, that they do because I've, I've heard enough stories. Those are anecdotal, of course, and it doesn't prove one thing one way or another. But uh, my assumption is that they, that they do when God um, sees the need for it, when He sees fit to do it. He distributes the manifestations as He wills. And just because they, they are real, and they are real. Another thing I've, I've seen, I've, I thought is interesting, today you have, uh, the cessationist view is pretty strong. Um, and, and, it's, and, and a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times what they do is try to even redefine what these are. I mean, I've heard some, some commentators and preachers that say, well, you know, these, weren't, uh, th- these things weren't for real at all. The, the, and they try to say the Corinthians were deceived just like charismatics are deceived today. And so Paul is trying to, you know, they misunderstood, you know, and they, they weren't even supposed to be doing speaking in tongues or anything like that. It's interesting, you go back and you read John Calvin or you read um, Charles Hodge or somebody like that that was before this modern Pentecostal movement. They, they, ha- they have... Um, a different view. I mean, they, they do understand the Corinthians to be engaging in um, miraculous, you know, supernatural manifestations of the Spirit. It seems to me that the, the change of mind came uh, along when, when, when there was so much um, abuse, um, you know, and since, since about, uh, what was it, 1906, I think, the Azusa Street Revival. Uh, and that's when, when the, what we know of today is the Pentecostal movement, charismatic movement today. That's, that's basically when it began. So, yeah, since then, when you've got so much abuse, um, then there's, there's kind of been a, a redefining of what these things even are. That problem didn't seem to exist before, which I find interesting. Uh, so, so I think, yeah, what's happening here is 
supernatural gifts within the church? Should they be happening today in, in uh, let's say, in Fillmore Baptist Church? Well, you know, again, I have to say what I said this morning. Not necessarily so. Not necessarily so. Um, there were a lot of, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of things going on in the first century church. The scripture wasn't even completed yet. Uh, you know, obviously, when Paul's writing this, because this is part of it, um, there, there, that, that is a point in redemption history where um, unique things are happening. But by the same token, I told you this morning, and I, I don't know of a passage that says that those things are done away. So my assumption is God produces them when He deems it necessary to glorify Himself. So if it's for the good of the church and for His glory, then it seems to me that that's when um, these things are manifest. And if they're not needed, they're not necessary, and I don't pretend to understand the reasons why or why not. Uh, Some people say, well, it's because we lack faith. And that's certainly possible, right? That's certainly possible. But I don't pretend to understand the reasons why or why not. But but if if it's good for the church and it will bring glory to Him, then that seems to me that that's the criteria. That's what He will do. And if it's not needed, then it seems reasonable to me to think that maybe He's not doing that at the present time. Maybe He's doing some of them and not, you know, and, and, and it's just not as prevalent as it was in the first century. So, I don't know if that helps, but, but uh, uh, I don't know, that may be kind of a non-answer, but, uh, you know, are, are they happening? Some people say they are. <laughs> Some people say that they're not. Um, but anyway, maybe we'll get to talk more about that when we go through chapter 14. Brothers, if y'all will come, um, we'll prepare to take the Lord's Supper before we dismiss. I want to... Read a passage uh, again from chapter 11 while they're getting ready. We just covered Paul's instruction to the Corinthian church regarding the observance of the Lord's Supper. And again, he's dealing with their abuse, their abuses here, their abusive attitude. He says in verse 23, chapter 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way, also He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we would judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned 
along with the world. Let's pray. Father, we do ask now that You enable us to focus on You. If our minds weren't already attentive to You, we pray, make it so now. Enable us to focus on this uh, observance, this remembrance of our Lord's death. We ask that You bless the elements before us, the juice and the bread. May we truly be reminded of Your grace in the suffering of Christ in His death as propitiation for our sins, the spilling of His blood for our sake. And Lord, may it also cause us to look forward with eagerness, with anticipation toward that day when Jesus returns. And as it is said, we shall forever be with you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all can go ahead and serve. Just ask everybody to hold the juice and the bread until everyone is served. There's only one prerequisite really, and that is that you know the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Um, If not, He, the Apostles, warning. Um, this, this is a participation for those who are in the body, those who know Jesus as Lord and Savior. This sermon is made available through the ministry of Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our desire is to faithfully proclaim the message of salvation, which God has provided in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. For more resources and information, please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org. You may use the links there to contact us or write us at Fillmore Baptist Church, 6304 Highway 80, Princeton, Louisiana, 71067.